That part of the word of God that we want to draw your attention to this evening is 1 Timothy chapter 6. And we'll read the chapter in its entirety. But as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them, because they are brethren, but rather do them service, because they are faithful and beloved partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings, of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness from such Withdraw thyself. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which, while some coveted after, they had erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness, Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold 
on eternal life. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science, falsely so-called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. Amen. Boys and girls, I'm wondering if you ever heard something like this in your house or maybe in a friend's house. Hey, give me that. No, it's mine. It's not yours. Well, I bought it. Well, it's still not yours. Like, how is that? Well, everything belongs to God. Yeah, okay, but I'm still keeping it. If I were to ask you, children, who was right? Was it the boy who bought that thing with his own money? Or was it the other boy who said, well, everything belongs to God? Well, actually, it's both of them, right? God says in his word that all the earth is his. And yet, he allows people to buy things and own things and have things and enjoy things, at least for a while. So why then does God say we shouldn't steal? And does that mean as long as I don't take something from somebody else that doesn't belong to me, I'm okay with the Eighth Commandment? I've not broken it. Is there a positive way to look at this commandment, like we've seen in each of the commandments so far? Is there a gospel thread running through the Eighth Commandment, like there has been in the others? Well, let's see if we can find out with God's help. The text is 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but, and the understanding is, but trust in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. We also, as we continue our travels through the Ten Commandments, we turn to the Catechism once again, this time page 79, Lord's Day 42, question and answers 110 and 111. What does God forbid in the Eighth Commandment? Answer, God forbids not only those thefts and robberies, which are punishable by the magistrate, that would be like the police, but he comprehends under the name of thefts all wicked tricks and devices, whereby we design to appropriate to ourselves the goods which belong to our neighbors, whether it be by force or under the appearance of right, as by unjust weights, L's, measures, fraudulent merchandise, false coins, usury, or by any other way forbidden by God, as also all covetousness, all abuse and waste of his gifts. 111 turns the question around, but what doth God require in his commandments? So first, what does he forbid? 
Now what does he require? The answer that I promote the advantage of my neighbor in every instance I can or may and deal with him as I desire to be dealt with by others. Further, also that I faithfully labor so that I may be able to relieve the needy. Our theme this afternoon is the Eighth Commandment, Our Generous God. In the first place, he is bountiful in creation. In the second place, he is bountiful in grace. And thirdly, he is bountiful in glory. The Eighth Commandment, Our Generous God. We start with bountiful in creation. Children, I don't know if you remember where we started this morning. It was all the way back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. So let's go back there again just for a moment. You know, boys and girls, that God made everything, and that means everything, for his pleasure. The Bible says that. Revelation 4.11, the latter part of that verse, Thou, speaking of God, hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. And we know that's true because we see that in the creation history. As God was creating one thing after another, we would often read these words, and God saw that it was good. So he didn't just make things, but he took pleasure in the things that he made. And at the end of the sixth day, we read, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now, children, did God need a creation? No, he didn't need one for himself, that's for sure. God is the only God. He is a completely different being than everything else. He didn't need anything apart from himself. To put it another way, God was eternally and infinitely happy within himself. He infinitely was satisfied in the fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever. So if God didn't need to make a creation, well then the question is, why did he do it? Well, we could give, I suppose, a number of reasons. But the chief reason, he made the creation for his glory. In other words, the creation shows something of the glory of God in just the way he made it. But if he was perfectly happy within himself, who was he showing his glory to? He didn't need to show it to himself by making a creation, so obviously he made a creation to show his glory to someone else, to something else. And that's where the history of this world unfolds most beautifully. 
Because on the sixth day, the sixth day, boys and girls, God made a very, very special creature. And you know who that is. It's man. And then he made another very, very special creature, and that was the woman. And like we saw this morning, he brought the first man and the first woman together in marriage, and he made them both able to enjoy the creation. Now we may say, well, of course, but, but don't say that so quickly. So dogs, for example, like certain things, but I don't think you're ever going to see a dog sitting on a hillside looking at a beautiful sunset wagging its tail. You're not going to see a bird as beautifully as birds sing. They're not going to be sitting there listening to a choir singing God-glorifying music. They don't have the capacity. They weren't made like we are to appreciate God's creation like we are. In fact, we're the only creature to which God gave a mind and senses, our hearing, our touch, our feeling, our eyesight, to really appreciate, to value all that God has made and all that God is doing. That's special. So you look around in creation, there's all kinds of animals, birds and fish and insects and you name it, but we are different. Now, of course, we ruined a lot of that ability to see the glory of God in creation through our sin, through our fall. So even today, ordinary people can enjoy a beautiful sunset, can look at the mountains and see beauty in them, but how many people don't really see God in these things? The glory of God who made all this, that all of this is his handiwork. But after all, even after the fall, how generous God is still both to the righteous and to the wicked by providing so much in our lives. Jesus said this about his father. He said, He maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. In another place, God, Jesus said of his father that he is kind to the unthankful and to the evil. I think all of us have been taught to give thanks to God for things. I think of, you know, the prayers we pray when we're going to eat and the prayer after to give thanks. But just imagine the countless number of people who never once think to say thank you to God for anything. And, you know, we can be guilty of the same thing. We can say that we thank the Lord, but are we really thankful? Well, God knows if we are or not. But it's sad to think, isn't it, that so many people never 
thank God for things. They never ask God for things. It's as though God just is not anywhere. And yet, even though there are so many people like that, God provides them health, a place to live, food, and so on. He allows them to have families. He allows them to experience human love. He allows them joy and, and the ability to form friendships. He, he, God does so much for all of us. I was thinking about this growing season. There were a few times in the spring we wondered, didn't we, if it would get warm enough for the seed to germinate. Then there was a time this summer we were wondering if it was going to rain enough to let the crops mature. And yet I think it's safe to say that most of the farmers, maybe all of the farmers, God provided at least some of what was needed and hopefully thank the Lord for his kind, timely provision. Think about another thing. Where were we born? Where did God have us grow up? We live in a land where ordinary everyday people, think about this, ordinary people like us live better than many kings lived in the Middle Ages. You think about the medical care which we enjoy. You think about the variety of food that we have access to. You think of the the comfortable homes in which we live. You think about the transportation to get from here to there, the clothing choices, and so much more. We're so used to it, we hardly even notice it. But if you leave the Western world, if you leave what we typically call developing nations, you're going to find many, many people, boys and girls, who don't know if they're going to have food tomorrow, if they're going to be able to live another day. I've been in places where their home was made of mud and straw, where their roofs would leak, where the fire in the middle of their one-room home where everyone slept and where everyone ate, that fire was their stove, that fire was their furnace, it was all right there. Now why is it that so many people live so poorly, have such need, well, it's because of sin. And no, I'm not saying it's because they're such sinners and we're not. No, it's if there was no sin, if there was no fall in the Garden of Eden, there would be no poverty there would be no pain. There would be no need. There would be no disease. There'd be no starvation. There wouldn't even be any death. And yet, isn't it awful, children? As much as we've been given, 
we can be such complainers. Complain about our food. Complain about our vehicles. Complain about our home. Complain about our clothes. Complain about everything. It's not to my liking. I don't have enough. If only I had... And we have so much of so much and yet we're so often not content. And when we live lives of discontent, we're really complaining about God's plan for our life. Even if we never actually think that or come out and say that, he hears it. He hears every time, dear child, that you complain about the food you've been given by mom. He hears every time you complain about a school assignment. He hears every complaint that we as adults make about this or about that or about something else. He hears it all, even if we never say a word. He sees the discontent inside of us. So let's just say there's a person sitting here who so wanted to get married and prayed to God for a spouse, and now they're married. What do we find? Sooner or later, they're complaining about the spouse God gave them. So a person wants a nice home, yet soon enough, we find reasons why this or that is not suitable about our house. Maybe we wanted a nice vehicle, and we're so saddened and complaining when our vehicle does what every vehicle does. It eventually breaks down. It wears out. The question we really should ask ourselves, myself, yourself, what does God owe us? The very question itself doesn't sound right, does it? Does God owe us a blessing on our labors so that we prosper? Does God owe us enough health to actually do our labors? Does God owe us trouble-free relationships, uninterrupted peace? We know what we deserve. At the hands of God, and it's judgment. And yet... Isn't it remarkable? Despite our complaining, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, have not ceased, just like God promised. And so if we don't have the grace of God, our typical way of thinking is, as long as I have enough as long as I have maybe more than enough, everything's okay. God can remain in heaven until I need him. Life will go on and on, much the same as now, until it doesn't. Until we can't pretend it's just going to continue. Until eternity all of a sudden doesn't seem so far away anymore. Thou shalt not steal. Simple words 
a simple command, don't take what is not yours. But as we heard a moment ago, the positive side of this command is be content, be generous, or to put it maybe even in a better way, be more like the Lord and less like ourselves. So for example, Proverbs 19.17 reflects this. He that hath pity upon the poor lendeth unto the Lord and that which he hath given will he pay him again Proverbs 22 9 he that hath a bountiful eye generous shall be blessed for he giveth of his bread to the poor I think all of us are very familiar when, when Jesus said, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. But then the reason, the reason he attaches to that is that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. How so? For he maketh his son to rise upon the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So treating others, even very difficult others, maybe even persecuting others, treating them well, the motivation is so that we would be like the Father in heaven who treats sinners well. So the antidote, if I may call it that, to sins against the Eighth Commandment is to, first of all, be thankful for God's undeserved provision, to learn contentment with our lot in life, because the Lord in his infinite wisdom determined it for us in his providence, and then to learn, and this is the key, to learn to delight ourselves not in what we have or can get, but in the treasures which will last forever. And the most powerful, potent antidote of all is that we look to Christ as our shepherd for then we shall not want. And it was Jesus himself who said to us, take heed, beware of covetousness. Why? For a man's life consists not in the abundance of things which he possesses. So your value has nothing to do with what you own or don't own. But he goes on to say, lay up for yourselves, store treasures in heaven where neither moth 
nor rust doth corrupt, where thieves do not break through, nor steal. And that leads us to our second thought. God is bountiful, not only in creation, but also in grace. Adam and Eve, boys and girls, they defied God and they believed the evil one. And yet, what did God do? God gave them a promise of a savior. And God taught them that by way of sacrifice, another can take your place in judgment so that you can be saved and the other would die in your place. Pointing, of course, to the Lord Jesus. The generations before the flood also defied God and judgment followed. But then, as we heard this morning, God prepared an ark, spared mankind from uh, extinction. Then, you continue through scripture, you find Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are the the genesis, the, the beginning of God's Old Testament church and people. And yet, as you watch the generations from Abraham to Isaac, then to Jacob, then to the others who followed... It was a downward degeneration until, once again, God's grace intervened, and it did so time and again. So God sent judges, God sent kings, God sent prophets, and yet as we heard this morning, despite all of those mercies in grace, Israel was bent on backsliding and they suffered for it just like we do and yet the Lord despite even the severe chastening of captivity he restored them didn't he through godly leaders like Zerubbabel Nehemiah and Ezra then on the other side of the 400 years between the Old and New Testament, when there was no prophet speaking, God visits them in a most remarkable way. At that time, the church was in a low place. Not only was there 400 years without a prophet, but Israel was a mere shell of what it once was. It had godless religious leaders who were perverting both the image of God and the worship of God through their teaching and example. And as a nation, Israel was subject to Roman Empire domination. And yet, and this is so, if you think about it, it's so remarkable, into that cauldron of darkness and sin, God again raised up a remnant. People who were waiting for the consolation of Israel. People like like Zacharias and Simeon and Anna. And then into that mess of sin and perversion and domination by Gentiles 
comes the long-awaited Messiah Jesus. If you take the whole of that history together, can't we say with the Apostle Paul that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound? And this isn't just because God shows mercy. It's because God delights in mercy. And he says it in his word. The word of God speaks about not just his grace, but it says things like the exceeding riches of his grace. This is the God who comes so low, who condescends so far, that after ripping Israel's faulty religion to shreds, he comes down to them in their filth and need, and he says, come now. Let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. This is the God, beloved, that we ought to serve, that we ought to obey. This is the God who does, as Paul says, exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or even think. And he does it not because we're so deserving or because we're so good, but he does all of that because of what his son did. And if there's any doubt about God's attitude toward mankind lost, there is no greater demonstration, there is no greater proof of the love and of the mercy and of the grace of God that love and mercy and grace that is at the center of the heart of God, we can see that nowhere better, and you know where I'm going, we can see it nowhere better than the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Christ is the most, is the greatest wonder conceivable. Why? Because the just one dies for the unjust. The Christ of God dies for the ungodly. The Son of God dies as a man in order to redeem, to rescue the sons of the devil so that they can be the sons of God. The cross of Jesus is where as the psalmist says, mercy and truth meet together where righteousness and peace kiss each other. So that on the cross, all of God's attributes are honored and glorified in a once forever sacrifice. The Lamb of God for the sin of man so that the apostle was able to write the unthinkable 
when he said, God hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us so that we could be made the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. You can see why this second thought is boundless grace, unmerited mercy, the love of God to the most wretched of creatures, fallen man. And does he, after so many self-revelations to us in his word, his revelation of himself in the lives of people we've known and loved, does that God need to say to us tonight, don't steal? Does that God have to say don't steal when his son says, ask and it shall be given to you? Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened. And because we're so slow to believe, he adds, for everyone that asketh, receiveth. He that seeketh, findeth. To him that knocketh, it shall be opened. And then I trust you know how he followed that set of promises. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that earn it, to them that ask him, it says. It's not for nothing that the word of God says there are unsearchable riches in Christ. There is today still a fullness of bread in the Father's house for prodigal sons and daughters who come to themselves, see their sin for what it is, and say, I'm going home. Father, Forgive me. And beloved, I, I am painting this picture. I am bringing out these truths so that we may see it is bad enough when we distrust God so much that we are tempted to feel the need to steal something, something that I want. But if that wasn't bad enough, are we also going to rob God himself? How? Rob him of his glory by taking credit to ourselves for what he gives us, for the life and the breath and the being that he gives us, acting as if so much belongs to us when all of what we are and everything we have he has given to us. It was all a gift. And we become, and this is so ridiculous, we become proud of the very things we ought to humble us. If we would only realize who gave them to us 
and what we should be doing with those gifts. How about we reduce it to its simplest? Every sin is a violation of the Eighth Commandment. Because Jesus says, forgive us our debts. So in other words, every sin is a theft. Every sin is withholding from God what is owed to him. And that's why Jesus calls sins debts. Debts, boys and girls, that we could never repay. Debts that we can only make worse. That only Jesus, the Son of God, could pay in full. Which is why, going back to the cross, children, when he said, it is finished, you could just as well translate it in the Greek, paid in full. Paid in full. But there's so much more to all of this. We might comfort ourselves in thinking, well, I've never taken a thing from anybody. I pay my taxes. I don't cheat. I don't steal. And all of that. But there's a whole nother part. That's the sins of commission. But what about the sins of omission? The things we haven't done that we should be doing. The catechism points some of these out. It says, I should be promoting the advantage of my neighbor in every instance I can or may. I should be dealing with him as I desire to be dealt with by others. Further, I should be laboring faithfully so that I'm able to relieve the needy. You know, it's interesting if you would take a quick look through the Old Testament, in passage after passage after passage after passage, God is telling his people, I want you to care for the poor, for the needy, for the widow, for the widower, for the fatherless, for the stranger. Look out for all of those people in need. Why? Because you were once a stranger. Because you were once needy. And I rescued you. And because that's who we are, apart from the grace of God, we're the leper. We're the outcast. We, by nature, are the foreigner from the household of God and the commonwealth of the universal church. In Ezekiel 16, God compares us in our natural state to a little baby that's abandoned. I mean, imagine children going down let's just say Middletown Line Road on your way home, and all of a sudden, like, stop, Dad. There's a baby all by itself laying by the side of the road, and it's crying. No mom, no dad, no basket, no pillow, nothing. Just a baby crying, dying. God says, that was you. An infant that wasn't taken care of at all after it was born, left to die, and then God says, here's what I did. Now when I passed by thee and looked upon thee, behold, thy time was a time of love. I spread my skirt over thee, meaning I took you under my protection and covered thy nakedness. So this baby didn't even have clothes. 
And I swear unto thee, God swears unto that child, and entered into a covenant with thee, saith the Lord God, and thou becamest mine. Now I think if we saw, boys and girls, a little baby by the side of the road, I would hope that we would pull over and that we would pick up that child and try to take care of that child. And, and then we'd be like, okay, now what do we do? Well, maybe we should bring it to the hospital or, or, or put it up for adoption or do something. God said, when I found you and me in our sin, no one to help us, no one could rescue us. There we were dying. He said, not only did I stop, not only did I cover you with my care, I adopted you to be my own. Would not the Lord have us show to others, others in need, the same heart of mercy? Shouldn't we be called good Samaritans? Does not James say that pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, as well as keep ourselves unspotted from the world? Does he not warn us? Quote, Whoso hath this world's good and sees his brother have need and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, this question, how dwells the love of God in him? If we see someone in need and we have what they need and we withhold it from it, John says, how can you even think that the love of God is in you when you don't even give what you have to the needy. Do we not see that such acts of kindness can be an opening of a door for the presentation of the gospel? In Romans 15, we read, let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification, adding for even Christ, please not himself. You see, this is what it means when Paul says, be ye followers of God as little children. The word follower, as you've heard, can also be translated, be imitators of God, just like a child imitates his father or mother. It's, it's for this reason, in 1 Peter 5, verse 10, the apostle refers to the Lord as the God of all grace. So that means every act of mercy that happens on the earth finds its ultimate source in God. Even if the person doing it never once even thinks about God, every kindness, every expression of love, of pity, of grace flows either directly or indirectly out of the Lord's heart of grace. James says it in so many words. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights.
And that is why it ought to be obvious that all the glory for any such deed of mercy belongs to God. And that's why Paul warns the Corinthians, who made thee to differ from another? What hast thou that thou didst not receive? And if thou didst receive it, why do you glory as if you had not received it? Rather, the apostle says, in everything give thanks For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So in other words, we can be thieves by not giving the mercy and grace we should show to others, even those who admittedly it's hard to love, for whom it's difficult to do this. And let us not rob God of his glory, the glory due to his name by taking credit to ourselves for anything in pride, not honoring him through imitating him. But as Galatians 6.10 says, as we therefore have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them that are of the household of faith. So in other words... The Eighth Commandment points us, as do all the other commandments, to a bountiful, a merciful, a gracious God in Christ Jesus toward unworthy, hell-worthy sinners. And yes, beloved, there is need everywhere. There is brokenness all around us. There are more opportunities to do good than we know what to do with. And we can honestly become overwhelmed. We can become exhausted. We can be, as Scripture calls it, weary of well-doing. For as much as we would like to wish to be a light, as much as we might want to be a helping hand, it can sometimes feel like it's never-ending and it's all-consuming all of our life long. But what's the alternative? Should we close up our hearts? Should we hoard up all our mercies until death forces our hand open so that we lose it all, let go of it all? Even though sin is what opened the door to want, the human heart wanting more than we have, willing, if necessary, to take it from others. That will come to an end. And for those who, by the grace of God, plead to be content, to be Christ-like, God has saved for them the best for last. Is it worth it? Is it all worth it? That is a question we may have been tempted to ponder. A question suggested by the evil one himself. Young people, 
is a life of self-denial, self-sacrifice, a life of serving, a life of loving others, including the obstinate, the disobedient, the difficult, the debauched. Isn't Isn't there something inside of us that just wants to rest? To let somebody else be kind and generous and caring for a change. I think if we're honest with ourselves, and we we always should be, we've been self-serving far too long. For some of us, God's grace has convicted us of that sin, and it still does, that a life for self is a sinful life. But there's a reason we find in the word of God words like these. Brethren, be not weary in well-doing. For in due season, we shall reap if we faint not. It's why we have this command. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. It's why we're reminded to look not at the things which are seen, but to look at the things which are not seen, obviously by faith. For the things that are seen are temporal, temporary, But the things which are not seen with natural eyes, those are eternal. And I'll be the first to admit, this is difficult. This is very difficult to maintain. Only with the eyeglasses of faith can we understand why we should do this. Only when we have Jesus Christ in view do we have the ability and the motivation to do this? And isn't it awfully hard to wait? And it's even harder to wait when we're not exactly sure what we're waiting for. What I mean by that is if the world to come, the glory that abides, seems like a hazy, distant dream, then the world of now, the world we live in in the flesh, may often seem like all that there is. But it's not. And as we've seen with other commandments, so with the eighth, so much hinges on one word, faith. Why? God's already told us, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Which means the world to come 
we cannot even begin to imagine what it is. We can't even begin to come to grips because it is so beyond anything we've ever seen, we've ever heard, anything that's ever even entered our heart. God said the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. God said our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. God said, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. That's believers. So that even if we should be called to suffer persecution for Christ's sake, he said, rejoice insomuch that you are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. And children, like we've been memorizing in the peacemaker study, blessed are the persecuted. He says, Jesus says, rejoice, be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. So we wake up tomorrow morning. Will we be able to see all that? When you face mothers, whining children, laundry to be done, when we read about needy saints in countless countries, in mission magazines, when we're tempted to want more to become proud over some accomplishment of ours, when we're tempted to be selfish or tempted, God forbid, to cheat or to steal and so on, how clearly will those verses that I just read be in our mind? Or, as is so typical, will those verses be long gone? So how can those words of God be real to us? How can they remain real to us? How can they be real enough that on Monday and on Tuesday and on Wednesday they literally shape our desires and they squelch our discontent and they motivate us to self-sacrifice another day? One word. Faith. But understand correctly, we're not talking about faith in the glorious day to come. We're not talking about fulfilled desires to no longer have to be self-denying and other-centered. No, faith isn't latching on to a time. It isn't latching on to a place. Faith ultimately holds the pearl of great price. Faith holds the treasure 
found in a field. Faith embraces and appropriates the glory of all glories, and that is Jesus Christ. So, the Lord Jesus Christ is the center of this command. He is the center of all commands. He is our glory. He is our rest. He is our peace. He is the joy of our life, or something or someone else will be. So who is Jesus to you? Does, and I hate to say it this way, but I must, does Jesus only exist practically for three hours a week in your life? Or is he relevant however long your private devotions last? Or is Jesus, in fact, your treasure? Is he your love? Is he your joy? Is he your savior full-time? You see, our bountiful God gives everything. He gave his only begotten son to the death on the cross. He gives the grace of regeneration to deliver us from spiritual death. He gives the gift of faith so that the eyes of our understanding begin to see clearly, open to spiritual realities. He gives awakened desires to these things. He gives a will that is now engaged to pursue these things that we see are valuable. He gives the grace of perseverance so that we continue to pursue these things come what may. He gives the grace of preservation so that his children will not ultimately fall away even though they at times do fall. And he does so, beloved, because he is unspeakably, bountifully merciful and gracious. He lavishes upon his children unspeakable, endless glory. He reveals his son at last in glory to our very eyes in all Jesus' resplendent glory. Not just showing Jesus to us in glory, but communing with us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in sinless perfection. And we've earned none of it. We forfeited all of it. We've deserved the opposite of it. We have been children of disobedience. We have been rebellious. We have been obstinate. We've been unrepentant. We've been unbelieving. We've been hard-hearted. And we would remain so except and until the grace of God that brings salvation appeared. So a very obvious question, why on earth should we fight against a God like this? Why should we dabble our entire life in trifles when so much glory could be had? Why would we steal when God gives us more than heart could wish? Why would we be merciful? I should say, why would we be merciless to others when we are in such a desperate need of mercy ourselves. 
let us not do so. Let us not be bent on backsliding. If we have faith already, let us beseech God for a brighter, clearer faith so that Jesus would be more in view, more powerful, so that we would abide in him. If we have no faith, then let us repent of that blindness and bring that blindness to the one who heals the blind to the one who unstops the death, to the one who changes hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. I cannot show you the glory of Jesus. I cannot paint a vivid enough picture to give you a clear sight of the glory to come or of the glory of Christ. I can't do it for myself and I cannot do it for you, but we can ask the Lord for it. And we should. And we can look through the only looking glass we have that can show us Jesus and that reveals something of the glory that's well worth pursuing. And if all you see in the Eighth Commandment is I haven't taken anything from anybody, You've missed it. The world is fast fading. Eternity is fast approaching. Time is short. Eternity is endless. Christ is precious. Earthly gain is vanity. Today is a day of salvation. Tomorrow, it's too late. So what do we want to look at throughout all of eternity. On the one hand, in the ages to come, do you want God to show you the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus, or would you rather drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation and be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Amen.